0: Morning fellowship Fayetteville. I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. My name's Jimmy Cook. I'm one of the worship leaders here at Fellowship, and I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with us as we sing and we celebrate what Jesus accomplished for us in his life, in his death, and resurrection. Let's sing and celebrate together.
1: Good morning, Fellowship. My name is Andrea Barnett. I am the production coordinator here. And normally, I am not on the stage. Normally, I'm running around backstage where I'm in the tech booth, so being on here is a little weird. Um, But I am so excited to welcome you to Fellowship this morning. Um, If you're new here, there's a QR code above me on the screen. I'd love for you to scan it so that we can get to know you and connect with you. Well, one of the reasons why they even put me on this stage this morning is because we are in need of volunteers in some behind-the-scenes areas that you probably didn't even know existed. And I'm going to be at the info booth after service. Um, Also, uh, that QR code will take you to our serve form. But just to explain some of these positions to you that are like the -the behind-the-scenes inner workings of fellowship on a Sunday morning, our communion team helps prep all the communion pieces whenever we have a communion service. Our baptism team, which actually will be at the 1030 uh, service, they actually help with the family backstage, make them feel comfortable. Um, our hospitality team, they feed the worship band in the morning band and we love the hospitality team. Yes, we do. (laughs) We are big fans of the hospitality team. Um, I saw some fist pumps in the air back there. Um, They uh, make sure, since everyone has to get here so early in the morning, they feed them, whether it's through a drive-through or they uh, uh, cook it at home, they bring it here and serve the teams, which is awesome. Um, Our ushering team. Our ushers is probably our biggest area of need this isn't as behind the scenes because you see them every morning, but they help have a welcoming face. They help with offering. They help um, get you comfortable into your seats. Um, it's the first 20 minutes of service that you serve. Then you get to sit down and enjoy the rest of the service with your family. And then our prayer room. Usually a husband-wife team that works in the prayer room or a guy and a girl, but they get to, the honor and privilege of praying with people after services. So if any of that sounds interesting, again, info booths, scan that QR code would love to chat with you. Well, I am so excited this morning to have the call here. If you ran through the foyer and came in here, Brandy, you can go ahead and come on up. Um, if you ran through the foyer and just got to your seat, the call is actually in the foyer this morning. And if you don't know them, they are an amazing organization that connects the church and uh, immediate needs in the foster care system here in Northwest Arkansas. So Brandy, I would love to just give you the stage
2: and let you chat. Thank you so much for having us here today. Um, I'd like for you to close your eyes with me for just a moment. I'd like for you to imagine a child that you love. It could be your niece or your nephew. It could be your grandchild. It might be your best friend's baby. It might even be your own son or daughter. Now imagine for a moment that these child's parents cannot care for them and neither can you. For whatever reason, you are unable to. What kind of person would you want to step in and care for and love this child if you could not? Would you want a Christian? Would you want someone who would love them and care about them while showing them the extravagant love of Christ? Now imagine no such place exists. Well, it does exist. There just aren't enough of them. So, this child, your child, will be sleeping in an office tonight, feeling unloved, feeling as if no one cares about them, and wondering why. You can open your eyes. God has told us to care for the orphan. And today, the modern day orphan is a child in foster care, a child from right here in our town and in our community. They go to school with your children, with your nieces, your nephews, and your grandchildren. Today, in Northwest Arkansas, there are over 450 children who are in foster care and need Christian homes to care about them and show them the extravagant love of Christ. The reality is tragic, but the answer is clear. We cannot raise our hands in worship of a God that steps towards us and our hard and our broken and use those same hands to push away the hard and the broken of others. In the book of Galatians, it says that just the right time, God sent his son Jesus to be born on this earth. In response to all of the brokenness in our world, God's plan was not to remain far off, but rather to come close. This is the kind of God we serve. And in our world from a very young age, we're trained to avoid anything that is hard, anything that might cost us, more than we are willing to pay. So we become professional conflict of orders and we push away and we pull back. But the whole narrative of the Bible actually calls us to do quite the opposite. We're supposed to go near and press in with love because God does this amazing thing with brokenness. He can actually take the most broken things and turn them into beautiful things. Remember that number, that that big number I said, 450? I want you to think of another number, the number one. I want you to think about the power of one family saying yes. One family said yes to me, a 15-year-old girl who needed someone to show her the extravagant love of Christ, and today I'm standing before you, not repeating cycles of abuse, neglect, poverty, and addiction. Instead, I have a master's degree. I'm a homeowner. I have three beautiful children who are most importantly living a vastly different childhood than I did. What my parents did for me when they said yes did change the trajectory of my life, but it also changed the lives of my children and, will their children and so forth and so on. There are many ways to engage in foster care in Northwest Arkansas, but if God is calling you to do so in one capacity or another, we invite you to visit with us outside um, after the service today. Thank you.
1: Hey, Brandy, go ahead and stay on up here. Isn't that amazing? Like what God is doing through the call. They are doing what I call edge of the kingdom work, where they are on the spiritual front lines with these uh, kiddos. And so uh, I just wanna pray over the call real quick. If you don't mind, um, if you're able to just extend a hand out towards the stage, just as a gesture of praying and agreeance, um, let's pray over the call and what they are doing. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you are doing through the call. God, we pray for wisdom for them We pray for obedient hearts, whether they're in this room or other congregations, that they will come and say yes to being that one. God, we know that you already have picked out those families in advance. And so we ask you to reveal that. We love you, Lord. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray these things, amen.
0: passage this morning tells us that we were once darkness, but now we're light in the Lord. And Paul calls us this morning to live as children of the light. He says that the fruit of light is all righteousness and truth and goodness. So we're going to sing a song, and it's, it's our prayer this morning. Make this song your prayer, that God's light would shine through us, that his grace would shine through us. So let's sing this together. There's no darkness in your eyes There's no question in your There's no striving in you. So we see in Ephesians, the theme of unity, we've been inviting you to pray for local churches. And we have a video this morning that has a, a couple more prayer requests from some local churches. So watch this video. And then during the week as you're praying, just remember these, these churches uh, as you pray.
3: Hey fellowship, my name is David McKinney. I'm the worship pastor at Cross Church. So grateful to link arms with you to share the gospel to our community and expand the kingdom. Thanks for praying for us. A couple things I'd ask for prayer for. Number one, we have such a desire to raise up the next generation of worship leaders. And as you probably know, that is such a difficult task. We're asking that God would give us favor and influence and the right people to really be able to invest in the next generation and raise up worship leaders that will be leading our churches in worship for years to come. Another thing to pray for would be continued creativity on our team, uh, that God would birth songs out of our church for our church to sing. Um, I love that God gives each church heart songs for that church, and, uh, and I pray that he would continue to do so in our church. Hey, Fellowship Church. Pastor Grant Rowe here from Christian Life Cathedral here in Fayetteville, and myself, along with the leadership team and the congregation here at CLC send our love and our greetings to you all. One big prayer request that we would love to invite you to pray with us about is we are in the midst of a pastoral succession plan. In January 2024, our founder and senior pastor Steve Dixon will be retiring from a full-time local church ministry. And myself and my wife will be installed as the new lead pastors here at CLC. So please be praying that uh, everything would continue to go smoothly, that God would continue to lead his people, um, and, that, uh, and that we would be positioned for what he wants to do in this next generation. And uh, we're just so grateful for you all. Uh, just know that we, uh, we think about you and we pray for you often. And we're so grateful that we get the opportunity to collaborate with you to see the gospel and the kingdom of God established here in Northwest Arkansas and to the ends of the earth. So, God bless you.
0: Would you all stand as Haiza reads God's word for us this morning?
4: From Ephesians 5, 1 to 6. Portanto, sejam imitadores de Deus como filhos amados. E vivam em amor como também Cristo nos amou e se entregou por nós como oferta e sacrifício de aroma agradável a Deus. Entre vocês não deve haver nenhuma sequer menção de imoralidade sexual, como também de nenhuma espécie de impureza e de cobiça, pois essas coisas não são próprias para os santos. Não haja obscenidade, nem conversas tolas, nem gracejos imorais que são inconvenientes, mas ao invés disso, ações de graça, porque vocês podem estar certos disto. Nenhum imoral ou impuro ou ganancioso que é idólatra tem herança no reino de Cristo e de Deus. Ninguém os engane com palavras tolas, pois é por causa dessas coisas que a ira de Deus vem sobre os que vivem em desobediência. Good
5: morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we this morning? Good, good. My name's Garland. Uh, glad to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, I love, I just love seeing the unity of the other churches in our city, the language is being read. It just gets me fired up every time. Um, There's probably most of us can relate in life. Uh, I know for me, this ha- this happens in different seasons, maybe a seasonal change in your circumstances might cause this, or maybe you join a particular community or a particular uh, societal group, and things begin to change. You're, as you join that group, as you enter into that community, or as you change maybe social settings in your life, you find that your behaviors and your actions and even sometimes your attitudes can begin to adjust to reflect the new group that you find yourself in or the new season that you may find yourself Like a really easy example. I know for many of you, uh, many of you went to college and many of you when you were in college, you, you pledged a fraternity or sorority and uh, as you found yourself entering into this new community, this new group, it's pretty funny to watch how quickly people begin to adopt the behaviors and the actions of that new group. And what's ironic about it is, you may even adopt some of those behaviors and actions, the way they dress, the way they talk, and you'll even adopt some of the practices that you probably would not have done otherwise, but you do it gladly. You, you couldn't be more pleased to, to line up with how you live with this group that you find yourself a part of. It's not always joining a, a new social group or a new community. It could just be a, a change in setting in life. I'll never forget, for me, when we became parents, like, my behaviors, this, this, is, this picture sums up our household, essentially. Uh, like, my behaviors and my actions and my attitude, they had to change. Like, the, by necessity, they had to change, and change pretty quickly. I'll never forget, uh, we went up to, uh, it was a concert at the U of A, and uh, I remember thinking at the time, like, I could still pass for a young person, like, I still kind of look like a college student, and we pulled onto Arkansas Avenue, and we got out of our van Van people, raise it high, loud and proud. Van people, let me hear you. Oh, that's embarrassing. Van life is the right life, all right? I love the van, I love our van, okay. Um, Van people? (laughs) Come on, that's how you know. They're just so tired, they can't even muster a sound this morning, they're just like, I'm just glad I made it to church, okay? Don't make me make a sound. We pulled up to the U of a and we got out of our van and pushed a stroller up the sidewalk to where the concert was in front of Old Main. I remember thinking, I've become that thing. I'm a dad, and that's just who I am now. But we understand this, it's not that complicated. When you join a country club, like you're gonna adopt the practices and the behaviors and the way of the etiquette and the way you're supposed to dress, and you do it gladly. I've noticed that some institutions, some universities especially, they have and they go to the extreme in impressing upon their people a certain way to live or behave or act. Like, if you go to the university that we call Texas A&M, like you are going to end up looking like this guy. (laughs) Or not this guy, maybe this guy. Or maybe this guy. Now, we got a whoop over here, and I was expecting that from Tom over here. I just want everybody to know if you went to Texas A&M, we are making fun of you, all right? (laughs) I mean, we love you, all right, we love you. Okay, we love you. I was gonna ask you to whoop, but you already whooped preemptively, because you can't help yourself if you went to Texas A&M. You proved my point, thank you. We understand this, right? Like certain situations in life or certain social clubs you enter, you gladly adopt the practices of that group. And you do so without really even thinking about it. We do this all over the place. Here's my question for you and for me. If that is true, and it's such a normal part of our life, why can we be so flippant about how the Bible asks us to live? Why can can every other institution and every other group and every other social setting change how we live and behave, and yet when it comes to what the Scripture says about how we're gonna live, how we should behave, we can approach that, at arm's length. Whoa, 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 I don't know about that. I love Jesus and all, but don't ask me to change this. As we continue to look at the second half of the letter to the Ephesian church and the other churches in ancient Asia Minor, Paul's gonna continue to unpack the way that we should live. And it's got some bite to it, I'll be honest with you. Now here's where we're at in the letter. If you've been with us, let me summarize where we've been. If you haven't, here, let me get you caught up. We spent the first several weeks looking at the calling of the church, who we're supposed to be in Christ. This is your identity and it's filled with some amazing truths in the first three chapters of Ephesians about who you are if you are in Christ. And then, in chapter four, verse one, Paul's gonna then unpack how we should now live. and he's is gonna get in your face and he's gonna get in my face. Now, this section of Paul's letter, it is, Bound together by the repetition of the, the Greek verb walk. It comes in a command form. The NIV obscures this a little bit. I'll point this out for you today and translates it as live as opposed to walk, but it's the Greek word walk, peripeteo, and it's repeated over and over and over again, and in fact, it anchors our subunits of this section. By the way, write these down. We're gonna come back to this slide several times. So write these down. As you study Ephesians, these are the subsections of the big second unit called the conduct of the church, and we've looked at it. He says, walk in unity. That was two weeks ago. Last week, he says, walk in holiness. You're set apart, and this, this morning, we're gonna get The the middle two, five, one to six, five, seven to 14, the beginning of the last one. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. That's where we're going this morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter five. You can see it right here. Look at verse two. He says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk, underline it, okay? This is gonna be our repeated idea, and you need to see that when you come back to Ephesians years from now. This repetition of walk anchors this section of Paul's letter. And he says, walk in the way of love. And as he unpacks it, he's gonna drill down and get in your face and my face. Now, before we go forward, can I just give two caveats real fast? Two things that I think we may need to address. Maybe maybe I'm misjudging us here, but two things I think we may need to address before we move forward. Here's the first one, caveat number one. I hear... Something like this all the time, and especially our kind of postmodern Western culture that we live in. It goes something like this. When institutions, especially religious institutions, these old institutions, when they begin to tell people how they should live, how they should act, what they should do, what they who they can and can't sleep with, and what they should do with their money and all that stuff, for many in our culture, at best it's off-putting and at worst, it's downright dangerous. We see, those, we see those kinds of statements as power plays by institutions, and we are taught to avoid them, especially if you're kind of millennial age and down. Now, let me let Tim Keller just interact with you just for a moment. He's a pastor in New York City. I'm sure he deals with this a lot, and here's what he says. Just hear him. Any community, this is not that earth shattering, this is pretty basic, okay? Any community that did not hold its members accountable for specific beliefs and practices would have no corporate identity and would not really be a community at all. Hear him, we cannot consider a group exclusive simply because it has standards for its members. Just hear me. Every single human community, whether they're far right or far left, traditional or progressive, all of them, whether they're really big and popular or really small and narrow, has a set of values, beliefs, things that they hold to be important or true, and expectations for what they want their people to now live in light of. We're gonna have to move past this notion that it's somehow exclusive or wrong for the church to do the same thing. If you are here and maybe you're skeptical about this whole church thing, we're simply doing the very same thing that every human group does. So you're gonna have to go past that simple objection, it's so exclusive, that, Christians, the church is always telling people how to live. Everyone is. Now, the second caveat is gonna be a little closer to home, I bet, for many of us in the room. Here's our second caveat. We're just gonna have to deal with it. Our culture says, believe in yourself. You have what it takes. You find your truth. You do you. If it feels good, do it. As long as you don't hurt anybody else, go for it. Discover your, what makes you special and have at it. Believe in yourself. And Jesus essentially says the opposite. He says, deny yourself. Take up an instrument of humiliation and torture and death and come follow me. David Prince says, no one can do both. So in light of that, we're gonna study this passage. I'm gonna be honest with you. I've been working on it for uh, three or four weeks. And this section of Ephesians has been in my face. I don't feel... Like, I've got the authority to stand up here and say, man, I got this one figured out. So just as a moment of honest confession with you and me, as we go through this, I'm one of the worst offenders in this room. We're going to end today with some time of confession. You know why? Because I need it. We may all, by the time we look at this section of the letter. So I'm going to pray because I need it. I'm going to ask you to pray for me and pray for the next 20 or so minutes. We ready for this? Oh, gosh, no. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, you indeed are our king. We have no other. And as our king, you ask us to bend our knee before you, to follow you, to obey you, to trust you, to serve you, and what a radical life you call us to, a life that should look drastically and radically different So the areas in our lives, those of us that say you're our king where we are not yielding, where I am not yielding, would you this morning work in our heart and our mind that we might bend the knee to you as our king. You're the good king who gave your life as a ransom for many. We love you, we need you, and pray this all in your name as our king, Jesus. Amen. It's gonna be a little bit different this morning. What I normally try to do is kind of set above the passage and give three points that are kind of memorable and pithy and make sense together. And this morning's gonna be a little bit different, okay? Some of you, are gonna love it. We're gonna go straight verse by verse this morning, like commentary style. I thought of a bunch of ways to teach this, and I went, this might be the best way to go. So I want you to get your pen or your pencil ready, your Ephesians book, your Bible, whatever you got, and we're just gonna walk verse by verse, and we're gonna almost go commentary style. Some of you, that's your thing Let's get after it, here we go. We're gonna have three sections. Chapter five, one to six, Paul says, walk in love. And then he drops down to describe what that looks like. And I'll be honest, he comes out swinging here. Let's talk about how you're following Jesus, how you're walking. And he goes, let's talk about two things, your sex life and your money. Who's excited? Sex life and money, I want you to notice how comprehensive the conduct or the demands that the gospel put on us are. How comprehensive they are. Just on on this very first, these first two verses, verse three and verse five. See, in our in our culture today, in America today, there are many churches that say what the Bible says about sex, sexual expression, it's passe, it's archaic. It's obsolete. We don't need to listen to that. We've we've progressed through that. But what the Bible says about greed and materialism and oppression and injustice, it's right and should be followed and heeded. Then there are other churches that love to make a big show of denouncing certain sexual practices and yet seem to ignore what the Bible says about greed and materialism and serving the poor in injustice and oppression. And Paul's like, nah, nah, you're not getting away that easy. He says, it must not be named, as a literal Greek, must not be named among you porneia is the first word. Obviously, we get our word pornography from this word. It's a difficult word to define in the ancient Greek culture uh, because different communities define it differently. It seems as if the New Testament, what it wants to define, what it wants to call sexual sin, porneia it describes it this way. All sex acts that occur outside the covenant of marriage. All. The Bible is very narrow on its definition of this word, porneia. I think the word impurity is coming out of the same idea. Sexual expression outside of the context of a covenant of marriage. Now, this is not because the New Testament, the Bible, is just a giant wet blanket on all your fun that you can have. It's because the Bible has designed something profound and beautiful and amazing and it functions best in that context and everything outside of that is a cheap imitation. If you don't buy that, if you don't, if you don't agree with that, ask many of us in this room, we'll tell you. Cheap imitation versus this amazing thing that God has designed. Porneia or uncleanness, then he says, pleonexia, it's the word that's being translated here as greed. He even goes a little farther in verse five and says, greed, which the person who does this is an idolater. What is it about money, materialism, that is so easy to elevate from a good thing to a God thing, where we, which is what an idol is, to say I must have this for my sense of security, when I get the next promotion, when I get the next deal, when we sell the next piece of property, then I'll finally have it. I'll feel worth and value when I have this at the end of my title or this in my 401k. It's so easy for us to elevate greed, which we would never, we would never call ourselves greedy, but this sneaky idol of money. And in a culture dominated by materialism, hear me, Church family, do we take seriously what the Bible says about materialism and money? Do we see it for what it is, something that can easily wrap its tentacles around our heart and ensnare us? Church, do we take what the Bible says about sex and sexual expression seriously? Are you fighting sexual sin in your dating relationships, those of you dating? Are you fighting sexual sin? Married people in the room If this isn't enough, look at verse four. Let's talk about your sex life and your money and your mouth, comes out of your mouth. Now we're really sweating, aren't we? I know I am. He says, there should not be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking. Now, look at your translations. If you have something besides the NIV, it's probably gonna uh, struggle to translate these words and here's why. These words are only found, these three words, one time in the New Testament, and it's right here in this verse, all three of them. And so we can't go cross-reference where Paul uses this word in other places. We're gonna have to go outside of the New Testament and look at ancient Greek uses of these three words. And I did the work for you, okay? It's a big, fat book that's got all these uses in them, and it's a good read if you're super, super struggling to sleep, okay? So here's what these three words mean. The first one has the idea, I think, carried from verse three, shameful things to be talking about shameful things. It's translated here as obscenity. The second word is literally the word moros lagia, moron talk, moronic talk. It's to to speak foolishly, to speak uh, as if God does not give an account, as if there is no God in the equation, to to be flippant with our talk. How would you translate this third one? It comes from the root idea of being able to turn something, To turn it on a dime. Here's what I think he has in mind here. Um, To take something rather innocuous or not bad and be able to turn it on a dime into something filthy or sarcastic or perverted. It's a talent, isn't it? Some of you develop that talent. Especially guys in the room, we develop the talent of being able to take normal things and turn them into something perverted at about the age of 12. And then we perfect it by about 22. And then the rest of our life, we just live on the expertise we've gained in that decade. And Paul comes along and says, don't. Let that not be what comes out of your mouth. He says, but rather, what gives thanks. Those of you that know me know, every time, uh, this, this verse has been killing me. Every time we read the passages uh, four weeks out in our team meetings on Monday morning as we prepare for these services, we actually work on these, and uh, as we read them, every time we would get to chapter five, In this section, we read two verses at a time, the next person reads, and we always sit in different orders in this meeting. Every time, somehow, I would get Ephesians 5, 4. I was like, what are you trying to say, God? I don't wanna hear it. Um, Here's a little test I've been running the last couple weeks. I'm gonna invite you to do it. Just think of a set of scales, and mentally, as you go throughout the next week, on the one side, when you see the first three words, just note it, and when you see you giving thanks or honoring the Lord or blessing other people with your words, note that, and see where you're at in a week. I don't wanna be up here. I probably shouldn't be. It's been, it's, for me, this has been really difficult, wrestling with the implications of how we are to act. He says, don't, don't be deceived by those that would come in and say, your conduct doesn't matter, how you live doesn't matter. Those are the ones who are the sons of disobedience. He says, you gotta walk in love with each other. But then he says, walk in light. Look how he begins this section. The sons of disobedience, he says, therefore, when you see transition words like therefore, double underline them, okay, that's my way of doing it. You may do circles, you may use boxes, whatever that means, or however you do it, but double underline transition words. Note them somehow, highlight whatever you use, do it, okay? Therefore, don't be fellow sharers with them, is the word, fellow sharers. You can't belly up to the bar with the world, There's the way that the world operates, its systems and values, and you can't cozy up and flirt with it. You can't be partakers with it, friends with it. Craig Blomberg, he's a uh, New Testament scholar, commentary writer, and he says this about what friendship looked like in the ancient world. To be a fellow sharer, he says this. It says, friendship in the ancient world, hear it, it indicated identification to and relationship with something or someone. So to be friends with the world means to identify with its standards and priorities and values and ways of defining things and ways of defining right and wrong and ways of defining beauty and ways of defining success. What it highlights, you begin to highlight. Paul says you can't, you can't flirt with the world. You can't be a friend with it. You can't cozy up with it and think, yeah, I follow Jesus over here, but in my life I'm just Just buddies with the world. He says, you can't do it. It will always ensnare you. He says, why? He says, that once defined you. Now, notice what he says, verse eight. He doesn't say, for you were once in darkness, or you were once near darkness, or by darkness. He says, no, no, you were once darkness. Jesus' followers in the room, hear me for a moment. Do you rightly understand Paul here, I think this is what you must affirm. When you look out there at what you consider to be, you know, the vile, heinous, evil things out there in the world, pick your example of that. Paul doesn't let us off the hook ever. He would say, what you see out there, that's you apart from Christ. A Christian, Jesus follower, we never have the ability to look at somebody else, somebody that doesn't know Christ and look at them and go, oh my gosh, I would never. Oh yeah, you would. In the right conditions, the same brokenness that's in you, the same selfishness in you, the same desire to make a name for yourself that's in you, the same thing that craves to know that you matter, that leads you to give yourself away to things that you shouldn't. Pursue things you know that you shouldn't. That very same thing that's in you, it's in those people out there. It's so easy for you and for me to go, I would never. A Christian, and Paul doesn't let us off the hook. You were once darkness, he says. Look at the contrast. Double underline it. But now, huge contrast. But now, you are light in the Lord change is not because you were somehow brilliant or you somehow figured it out. No, the light shined on you and it changed you. That's what thats what it means to be a Christian. Not because you're morally superior, not because you're better, not because your family was better, the light shined on you and it changed you. And he says, live, now this is one of those places where the NIV obscures it, so walk. Uh, write the word walk in here. It's not live as children of the light, it's walk as children of the light. I get why the NIV is doing that. They're trying to give the sense of the word, but it's the same word, and when you, when, you, when you change it to live, you, you take the repetition out. You can't see it, okay? So it's walk as children of the light. It tells us what that looks like. It's goodness, to fight for goodness in the world, righteousness, it's the word the Kaiosune. It means God's rightness, or justice, God's standard of goodness in the world. We fight for it, and truth. Verse 10, finding out what pleases the Lord. I don't like this translation. I don't like what the NIV is doing here. Finding out what pleases the Lord. This is the Greek word, dakimatso, and it means to test or to examine. I like to think it this way. You put it through the ringer. All right, here's how you do that. You go through the decisions in your life. Christians, hear me. You go through all the decisions of your life, the big ones and the small ones, the big ones that, make, that determine the destiny of your life and the small daily decisions that's your office, and you put them through the ringer. Here's what it looks like for me. An issue comes to my life. Can I do this? What should I do here? How should I approach this? And the first thing is we test it. We documento it. We run it through a grid of, what does the scripture say about this? What pleases the Lord? Our aim is not pleasing our children, or pleasing our boss, or pleasing our bank account, but pleasing the Lord. And he says, that's the grid you run everything through. How you will vote, how you will behave, what you will do in your next business deal, what you will do on the weekend, how, what you do on a Saturday night. Do you run that through a biblical grid, or is it very easy for many of us, Paul says you can't do it, to separate out. Well, I've got my church time, And yeah, my Bible's open then. Then I've got the rest of my life where I kind of go about my business. We're gonna see in a minute, Paul says, you can't do that. That's not what it looks like to walk in light. This has nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but expose them. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Here's what I don't think he means. Hear me. We sometimes have a bad habit of this, Christians. He doesn't mean we go around wagging our finger Oh no, look at darkness out there. Darkness, darkness, darkness. It's not what he means. What does he mean? I think he means that we embody the kind of community where the things of darkness are exposed for what they are. We become the kind of community where materialism is exposed for what it is and we say no. Where exploit, uh, exploitation is exposed for what it is and we say no. Where racial division is exposed for what it is, and we say no. We become the kind of community that embodies a place where light shines. And we don't let the deeds of the darkness in. It takes some work on your part and on my part. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, he says. Let's look at it walk in wisdom. Be very careful. Then, there's another transition word, then or therefore, be very careful. See, watch your steps, he says. How you walk, same, same idea, take the word live, cross it out, right, walk. Be careful how you walk. It's gonna give us a contrast, three positives and three negatives. Note them, you can put little one, twos and threes or negative signs and plus signs, however you wanna note it in your Bible. Be careful how you walk, he says. Here's the three negatives. The first two really go together not as unwise, and don't be foolish, he says. What does that mean? The Old Testament, in Paul's understanding of wisdom, it starts like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. To walk as unwise and to walk as foolish is to live a life as if God might as well be a million miles away from you. And he's talking to believers here. Here's what this looks like for you and for me. I see this happening in my life all the time. When I'm at community group or at church or having my quiet time in the morning or something like that, that's God time. And then I live my life as if, you know, I'm in charge. Yeah, there's the God time over there, my sacred time. Then there's the rest of my time. And essentially, I I can find myself almost living as if God isn't really in the equation. Many of us have adopted a sacred, secular divide in our life. By the way, our culture is asking you to do it as well. Sacred time, then there's the rest of my life where I'm kind of in charge. Paul says, no, no, no. it's not how it works. You been the knee to a king. Do you realize this? Then he gives us our, our third negative. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Not that anybody in this room has ever been drunk on wine. Um, but what he has in mind is the kind of thing that happens when you are drunk on wine or drunk on some kind of a substance, when you lose the ability to have your wits about you. He says, don't be that. I told you he's in your face this morning. Then he gives us three positives. He says, don't live as unwise or foolish or walking around without your faculties, he says, but be wise. What does it mean to be? to live or walk as wise. Verse 16 explains it. It's making the most of every opportunity. Literally, here's the Greek, buying back or redeeming the time. A lot of your translations will bear that out because you know the days are evil. You recognize when you walk as wise, you know what time it is from a salvation standpoint, from a salvation history standpoint. You know exactly where you are on the clock. Christians, do you know what time it is? Let me tell you what time it is. If you haven't considered this in a while, let me update you on what time it is. You live in a world, Christians. You live in a world where the creator of the universe, the new galaxies that the James Webb telescope is finding, you live in a world where the creator of all of it has stepped into this very earth that we walk, in, that we walk on not a myth, not as a phantom, but as a human, and that human who created the world really did live on this earth, and he really was arrested, and he really was falsely tried, and he really was killed and hung up on a Roman cross, and he really went into the grave. But you live in a world, this is what time it is, you live in a world where Easter Sunday has occurred, where he rose from the grave, and now currently lives and reigns at the right hand of the Father. You live in a world, hear me, Christians. You live in a world where the time is set, where new resurrection life has come into the equation. Sin has been dealt with and defeated on the cross. He really is reigning as king. And death really is defeated. Do you know what time it is? When's the last time you considered it? Because if you, do you think, can you think of the implications of such a statement? Walk around on Dixon Street going, you know what time it is? Resurrection time. Do you know what time it is? The implications of that means your life has urgency and matters today. Everything you do today is in light of that hour. When's the last time you thought about it? That's what he means by walking as wise. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, don't get weird on me here. He's gonna explain what that means. It's not unclear, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It's not some weird, ethereal, charismatic thing. Look at what he says. He gives us five participles, normally those are translated with I-N-G, when the, the ones that aren't, I helped you there. Uh, five participles that explain what it means to be filled. Here they are, you know what they are? You sing. That's pretty simple, right? It's just speaking and singing and making music, giving thanks, you sing with your heart. We all know this. Think back when you like fell in love in like junior high, or high school, you fell in love with that girl. You know what you did? You couldn't help but sing. You fell in love with that guy, you sang. You poured in your journal, Lord, if I don't end up with this person, I won't be able to live. They're the greatest person in the world. You created them just for me. And you sang. You couldn't help it. He says you sing and you serve. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you're filled with the Spirit, you sing. You Found something worth singing about, and you serve. You can't help it. You sing and you serve. John Piper, describing what it looks like for us to worship God, to sing. He says, nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, Guilty, aching hearts besides God. You sing. So, what, what receives the song of your life? Is it money or prestige or leisure or family or Do t- You sing. You won't believe what my Savior and my King has done. You serve, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's after how we walk. Let me return to our two caveats as we close. All communities are doing this. Every human institution is doing this. So we gotta grow up past this idea that somehow the church is wrong for doing it. But can you imagine such a community? Think about it. A place where people are not exploited with money or sex, but look to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A place where the injustice and brokenness of the world is shown for what it is and is sent away. A place where people are generous with their stuff instead of hoarding it for themselves, not looking at their own bottom line. A place where people delight in the Lord and delight in each other out of reverence for Christ. Imagine such a community. Paul means to create these kinds of communities. You know what we call it? The church. And he means to create them all over the place in the world. Imagine that kind of community. It's what you were created for. It's what you were born for. It's what you long for. It's what our culture craves. a kind of community that really looks like this. Now our second Caveat, the mantra believe in yourself, live your truth, you do you, find who you are and go be it, it's killing us. Can I give you two reasons why it's killing us? First reason is this, think of the pressure that puts on you to figure out who you are and what makes you special. How do you know you matter? How do you know you're yourself? How do you know you're beautiful? Think of the pressure that puts on you. Some of you are more tough than others, have more stamina. You're essentially tethering your source of your confidence and strength to your subjective feeling of it in the moment. Good luck. You will bounce back and forth from feeling really important to terrified. You might even do it in in an instant. Second reason, this is killing us. We all know that for our deep value, Know we truly are beautiful and matter. so that we're truly loved. We must have it spoken by someone from the outside over us. And the more powerful or impressive or worthy the person that speaks it over us, the more it fills us. But it must be spoken of from the outside. Look at the very first two verses of our passage. Here's how it began. Paul said this. He says, imitate God. Why? Because your dearly loved children. How valuable are you? How special are you? How much do you matter? I matter? You matter enough that Christ was willing to give himself up for you. He would stare down the life that you should have lived, the death that you should have died, to set you as his child. That's how loved you are. And that's the fuel to why probably go and live this way. Not white knuckling, not trying to earn something from God, but out of a response. Jesus has done for us. That's how we live it. Here's what we're gonna do as we close. Uh, We've saved our confession and assurance of pardon to now. We're gonna hang out in the confession for a moment. We're gonna say this together corporately and we're gonna sing a song of just confession together Then we'll celebrate our assurance of pardon. So with me over these next few minutes, can we take a little inventory of our life? areas where we need to submit to the Lord. Maybe these next few moments, we can begin the process of doing that. It's been a hard two weeks for me. I've been working on this myself. So let's confess together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a savior.
0: sing this song, just kind of hang in that confession moment, and we'll ask the Lord to take our lives and use them for his purpose. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my... those of us who are in Christ. These words are true. They are good. We can follow him. So church, believe the good news. Say this with me. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's sing and celebrate this together. so glad that we can worship together. My prayer for us this week is that we would walk as children of the light in all righteousness and goodness and truth. If you would like to pray with someone, uh, to my left, to your right, you can go out these doors and up the stairs. There's someone who would love to pray with you in the prayer room. Have a great week. You are dismissed.